You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. Before we, I say anything else, I would like to pray. Lord, uh, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your uh, love for us. Thank you because we can meet together as your church. Uh, thank you for the blessing that we have in doing that without any consequences. We, we don't have to hide. We don't have to be afraid for our lives. Um, and we have a comfortable place. We have Bibles, and, and, and that is a blessing uh, that many people don't have today. And I pray that um, we would exploit these blessings and take advantage of the fact that we have a comfortable place to hear your word preached and we have access to your Bible and I pray that today we would be challenged by it, that we would pay attention and listen to your word and, and mostly uh, uh, take action and, and do it, uh, apply it to our lives. I pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, so Ephesians chapter 2, this is a very special sermon for me. Uh, I've shared before that I was a Christian for a long time. I mostly grew up in in the Pentecostal movement, and I've come to realize that not all Pentecostals are the same, but the one I grew up in was not very healthy, and I was transmitted a way of seeing Christianity that was not accurate. Uh, I thought that Christianity was about being good and actually going to church and um, making good decisions. And this is one of the um, first chapters or, or texts that I've read when I was being explained the gospel in its full sense. And so this is really um, special to me. On top of that, uh, not only the, the text helped me understand the gospel, but it was also the first, the first uh, sermon I preached after I um, understood the gospel. So my notes are all in Spanish for the first time because I wanted to retake this. I revisited it and I added some stuff in English. But um, this is an, a, a special, a special uh, sermon for me. So... I'm not, I'm, I, this is not a guarantee that it's going to be a good sermon. It's just a, one of my first sermons. And this actually was preached for the first time in 2012. Uh, so it's been 20 years, 10 years. Sorry, it's uh, my 10-year anniversary in a sense. Uh, okay, so let's, let's review a little bit. So we, we learned chapter 1 uh, about God's saving plan for us. We saw how the Trinity works So in order to save us. We saw how the Father decreed our salvation, how he elected us, uh, and through his Son, Jesus Christ, he redeems us, sanctifies us, forgives us, adopts us, and gives us an inheritance. And then we saw how the Holy Spirit comes to apply this salvation that was executed by the Son and seals us and becomes our guarantee of the inheritance uh, so that we can achieve it or, or arrive to it. And Paul gives us an amazing picture of salvation in chapter 1. Then he moves on to pray for the church. Remember that? 
He prays for the power of God to be revealed to them uh, so that they can continue in mission. And now Paul moves on to preach or explain the gospel to these people. And the focus of this sermon is the gospel. There is really no title. I'm not really good at titles, so this is by title is the gospel. Um, and so what we saw before is sort of like a macro version of how God saves us with all the uh, persons of the Trinity working together. Uh, we don't have necessarily a timeline. Uh, God, God the Father predestines, uh, predestines us before the foundation of the earth. Jesus forgives us and, and also uh, sanctifies us and gives us inheritance. And so we don't know exactly when this is happening. And what Paul is doing now, he's zooming in and he's now talking about how these things work, but not from a large, big, macro perspective. Now he's zooming in into, into what we do or what is our role in this, in this salvation. And now the focus is us, not necessarily what God is doing, but what is it that we're doing? How are we relating to this? How are we contributing to this? And we'll see that we really don't contribute anything. But let's go ahead and, um, and read the text uh, today. And Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being, a rich, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, there's, there's a lot in this text. There's so much. We could literally take years just to preach to those 10 uh, verses. But we're going to highlight a few things. I'm going to try my best to explain how we are saved, how the gospel is uh, kind of taken apart and give us some, some, give us some key uh, doctrines that we can, we can take from this. So I'm going to approach it this way. We're going to see two scenarios. The first scenario is, or, uh, or first circumstance is, our life before Christ. Who were we uh, before Christ? And then the second section is, now whether we have Christ or our life in Christ, and how does that look? So the first part is going to be very dark. Please bear with me. There's going to be some things that you're going to hear that might not be very appealing or life-giving. But then the second part, uh, it's going to be completely the opposite of that. Okay? So let's talk about the first one. And the, 
the, the text opens up by linking this to the previous one with the word and. So Paul is continuing to pray for these people, and then he goes on to, uh, after the prayer, to relate the gospel to them. I want to make a note, a parenthesis. Uh, remember, this is a church he's speaking to. He is preaching the gospel to people that are already Christians. He's writing a letter to the Ephesian church. And we need to understand that we all need the gospel, okay? And when we talk about the gospel, this is a word that everybody uses. I have never heard uh, any denomination, either cults, that also use the word gospel. Uh, so I just want to clarify exactly what it means or how I am work using t the term gospel. So every time you hear me say the term gospel or the word gospel, what I'm saying is the good news, this is important, the good news, not how to get to a place, not a map, not a set of rules. It is good news of what God has done and continues to do through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to provide salvation to us sinners, okay? So I want to make sure that you understand that this is what I'm talking about every time I hear the word gospel, Oh, wow. I thought of the alarm again. <laughs> All right. So the first, the first thing, verse 1, chapter 2, says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And the first thing we need to understand is that before there is good news, there, in order for those news to be even bigger, there has to be some bad news. And that's how the gospel begins. The gospel begins with bad news. What are those bad news is that you, are, you and I are dead spiritually and going to be dead physically because of sin. We were dead in our trespasses, trespasses and sins. And he says where because that's going to change later. But without Christ, we are dead spiritually and walking towards death physically. So the way I usually tell people this is, and this is how I explain it to my kids as well, is that we were branches, and this is also a biblical, a biblical example, we were branches of God, right? We were rooted in Christ. When we were created, we were in a close relationship with God in the garden where God walked around us. We, we saw him, he saw us, and we were connected to him. But then sin entered the, entered the world, and what sin did was separated us with God. So that branch decided to walk out of that trunk of God. And what happens to a, a branch that walks out of, from the trunk? It loses its life. The, the, we are fed through the trunk into the branches, and that branch decided to leave, walk out. So the branch does not immediately die, but it's going to die. And that's the exact same thing that happened to us. We are born, but we are born to die. We're all in the process of dying physically. That did not happen with Adam and Eve. They were not dying physically because they were constantly in, in line or in touch with the trunk, with life. They were in a relationship without any separation with life. And sin enters the world and sin, sin brings death to all of us. That's exactly what Paul tells us in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus our Lord. So, 
when Paul is talking to this church, he reminds them that at one time, this is a church, they're, they're no longer in this situation, but they, they were dead. They were spiritually dead and physically about to die as well because of their sins, because of their transgression, because they are not following what God said. And that's what sin does. Romans 3 also tells us that we all have sinned, we all fall short of the glory of God, and that's the case of everyone. The Bible says, again, in Romans, uh, that we all sin, that none is righteous, says Romans 3, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. And the doctrine that we uh, relate this to or recall this to is, uh, is uh, total depravity. We, we as Christians believe that humans are totally depraved. And what that means is not that we are not able to do anything good. It's that we all, whatever we do, we do it out of this sinful nature. We, were, we are sinful by nature because we are descent, descendants of Abraham, Adam. I'm sorry, not Abraham and Adam. But we are also sinners by choice. So we have nowhere to go. We are descendants of Adam, and because of that, we are sinners, but we are also sinners because we choose to sin every day. We are sinners by nature, and we are also sinners by choice. We are able to function because of the image of God within us in a way that sometimes resembles or has glimpses of goodness within us, but we are not able to move towards God. In fact, we don't want to move towards God because we're actively moving away from God in our sins. And this is our life without God. We are not able to come to life on our own. We are not able to, to, to uh, get saved on our own. It is impossible for a dead person to come to life because he, is, he just can't. And that's what Paul is describing, describing here. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. And then he continues to say, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is important because there's only two options based on this, on, this, uh, on this text and many other texts. If we are not in Christ, and if we are not for Christ, even though we don't want to assume that, the Christian teaching is that we are following Satan. There's really no middle ground. You cannot be neutral. If you are not for Christ, or if you're not, if you're not in Christ, then you are following the prince of the power of the air. You are following the course of this world. You are following the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There's only one option to do it right, and the option is Jesus. Our faith, in a lot of ways, is exclusive in the fact that there's only one way to get saved. It's it's inclusive to everyone because everyone is welcome to come into this, into this relationship, into this faith. But the only option we have to be saved is through Christ. And if you're not in Christ, you are following Satan. And if we actually dig a little deeper into this, we realize that what Paul is saying here is really just common sense. 
people who are not believers, people who are not following Christ, follow the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, which is Satan. And let me explain why is this. It's not that you're just, I'm not trying to say that if you're not a Christian, you are a, a Satanist or that you have an altar and you're killing people or babies or animals. Or no, I'm not saying that. What, what Paul is saying here is that when you are not following Christ, you're following what Satan wants you to follow or the way Satan works. And just as a comparison, and we'll see this in a moment, when you follow Christ is basically giving up yourself for Christ. You are not following yourself. The way of Christ is denying yourself. The way of Christ is dying to yourself, is giving the life, your life, to God as your Lord, your King, the one who rules, and your Savior, the one you need to be saved. That's the way of Christ. What's the way of Satan? And we see it in, in Genesis 3. The way of Satan is basically what the serpent told Eve. Hey, don't do what God told you. Eat this fruit. It's not the fruit that made any problems. It was the act of disobedience. Do what, do what God told you not to do. And guess what? You will be like God. That is exactly what verse 5 says in, in Genesis 3. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Knowing good and evil. So the way of Satan is basically the way of follow what you want, do what you want to be so that you can be God, so that you can do whatever you think it's best. You are the one who's going to now make the decision on whether that's evil or that's wrong or that's right. And that is exactly what happens today. Especially today, we have a society that avoids truth at all costs. Now we have terms like my truth and your truth, right? Everything is relative to what I believe. We have a society of gods who believe that they can do whatever they want with whatever they think it's best in their lives. And that is exactly what Paul is describing here. People that do not follow Jesus, they follow the course of this world. They follow the prince of the power of the air. They follow the, thing, the way Satan operates is by telling you that you should do what you think it's best for your future and your, 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 you. That's Satan's way of doing things. This is how we act without Christ. And if we're honest, even with Christ, we act that way sometimes too. It is our struggle. Because we, sin is dying within us, and we are actively working in, in, in pushing that sin down and killing that sin, sin down. But it rises up again, and it rises up again. And until we are fully saved in glorification, that sin is going to be a problem for us. But what Paul is saying here is that People who are not Christian, they don't have that option of battling. They're completely following that way of doing things. I love how John Stott defines sin. And this is one of my favorite quotes. He says, sin is a revolt of the self against God. The dethronement of God with a view to the enthronement of oneself. 
Ultimately, sin is self-deification, the reckless determination to occupy the throne which belongs to God alone. Sin is basically saying, forget you, I'm going to do my thing. And that's what everyone does if they don't follow Christ. And to be honest, that's what we battle with every day, even as Christians. That's what we do. So when the Bible says you are dead in your trespasses and sins and that you are following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the earth, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, he is saying that's what we are. We are people who constantly choose ourselves above everything else, above not only your neighbor, but God himself. And that's why we are called sons of disobedience because God's commandments are all about not us, but putting others first, and especially God first. So we are sons of disobedience. That is what we call total depravity. That is what we call that we are sinful by nature and by choice. But then Paul continues to emphasize this point, and he says in verse 3, among whom we all once lived, and says this again, lived in the passions of our flesh. That's what we cared about. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That's what people without Christ do. That's life without Christ. It's all about your passions of, of the, the passions of your flesh, the desires of your body, the desires of your mind. That is what kills us. Sin is you taking the throne of your own life that only belongs to God. That is sin, and that separates you from God. And the more we are separated from God, the more we are dead. And that is why hell is the culmination of everything. Hell is not a place in which a God who just got angry at us sent us all on a whim because he's, he just doesn't like it. No. It is punishment, but it's also Letting you go to where you want to go. There's an aspect of hell that is, okay, you want to do your own thing? Well, go ahead. You want to get away from me and my rules and my love for you and you don't believe in me? Well, then go ahead. Move on. Continue on the path in the opposite direction of me. And where does that path end? It ends in total absence of God. It ends in suffering, in darkness, in hell, that is hell. And that's where everyone is moving towards without God. But then verse 3 says something that's even more sometimes dramatic for people. That we were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. And we love talking about God as love and we love talking about God as merciful, and He is, and we should talk about those things. But we should also highlight the fact that love requires drastic actions. We love John 3.16, but not everybody likes John 3.36. In the exact same chapter, God, Jesus, is speaking to Nicodemus, and He says, in John 3, chapter 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. 
we don't like talking about the wrath of God. One of the reasons why is because when we hear the word wrath, as we also do with the word love, we use human language or human behavior and we apply it to God. And that is not the best way to do it. When we talk about I love something, we're not acting like God when he loves something. And it's the same when we say that we, my wrath against you is not the same wrath against God. My love towards anything or anyone and my wrath towards anything or anyone are both sinful. But God's is not. God's is perfect. And when we talk about God's wrath, we need to understand that this is not an angry God who's frustrated and tired and acts because he just can't control himself. No. When we talk about the wrath of God, uh, I love this definition. The, uh, w. Pink, Arthur uh, W. Pink says it this way. The wrath of God is his eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. It is the displeasure and indignation of divine equity against evil. And this is the best part. It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. There is no other way that God can act towards sin because he is love other than with wrath. And the only example that I always use is if anyone is going to damage my family because of the love I have for my family, I have no other option but to act in wrath against that person. Do we? No. I could say that I am a Christian and that love is the foundation of my soul. And then I see someone coming towards my wife and my kids with an axe. And I fall to my knees and start praying. Everyone's going to be like, wow. First, what a wimp. Second, I don't know if he really loves his wife and his family. Because my love or the love I say I have for my wife and my family must Move me to action in wrath towards those who are about to hurt my family. And that's the wrath of God for us. We are children of wrath because we're actively living in disobedience. We are giving sin a full ride in our lives to not only hurt ourselves, but to hurt others around us. And God reacts to that in wrath. And that's how God acted towards Jesus. When Jesus is in Gethsemane, he's praying and he's saying, God, please allow this cup to pass from me. He is referring to the cup of his wrath mentioned in Jeremiah. He is saying, God, please don't do this to me. He knows he's about to take everybody's sin upon him and he's going to be treated as a murderer and as a criminal in our place and the wrath of God is going to come on his own son with full force. And he was beaten, people spat on him, people nailed him to the cross and he was destroyed, murdered in that cross because he was treated with the wrath of God that came upon him in our place. That is the wrath of God. That is how God treats sin. That is why God created hell, because he abhors sin. So we are dead. We are sinners. 
We are children of wrath. We are following Satan without God. We are in the worst state you can ever imagine. When God came to this earth during Christmas, it, it wasn't a funny, nice little experience of a God coming into this beautiful manger. No. It was a perfect, holy God stepping into crap. He was coming in and being surrounded by sinners. The holy, loving, perfect God touched earth full of sin. That is who we are without Christ. That is who we were without Christ. But guess what? Everything changes. And then we come to verse 4, and it's the best thing we could see. Verse 4 says, but God, and I love it that every time you see a but, it's like whatever happened before, it almost like just falls apart because there's something else better coming. It's like when my mom used to say, I know you failed school, but we're going to go to this camping trip. He's like, yeah. It's almost like it didn't matter that I failed school. We're all going to go to the camping trip. <coughs> and this is what's happening right now. But God, this is who we were. This is how we are described. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us. This is amazing. We are loved. But understand who God is loving. Who is God loving? He is not loving these beautiful people that are acting well. No. He is loving dead, sinful children of wrath who are actively living in disobedience. He he sent his son for those, for us. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. This is a great love with which he loved us. And, and there's people who, who believe that Paul is utilizing a lot of uh, hyperbole during Ephesians, but it's not true. It, it is like that. The, the power of God is immeasurable. The power of God is great. The love of God is great. It's immense it cannot be fathomed, and we see it here. God is loving these horrible people because he is mercy and because he loved us with great love. Note that he, there is nothing that we have done. There is nothing that we have uh, contributed to this. There is nothing that we have added to this. No. The only thing that we added is our description of the worst thing we can be. And then God shows up in the picture and he loved us and he saves us. Why? Because he has mercy, because he has great love, because he loves us. Why are you saved? Because God loved you. That is the deepest theology you can have. A children's song. Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. That is the biggest theology you can have. If you add anything to that, you're wrong. Why did God love you? Because I'm cute. No, you're not. He loved you because he is amazing. And that is what Paul is going to continue to say. 
In fact, the Apostle John writes in his first letter, uh, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, he says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sin. This is the greatness of the good news. This is when we start to turn the corner and we start seeing the actual gospel. The bad news became good news. The really bad, bad news become now really, 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 really good news. And this is how the gospel continues. And I want you to understand and I want us to understand because I know you've heard this a million times, but we need to hear it a million times more. The reason why God decided to love and save us is because he loved us with great love, period. And that continues to happen today and tomorrow and until the day you die. There is nothing you can do to earn his love more. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You have been saved as a gift that you do not deserve. You have been saved because he wants to save you. He made you alive. He gave you life. You were dead and he gave you life. You don't contribute anything. We don't contribute anything. We were sons of disobedience and he chose to come and love us. And it doesn't stop there. Verse 7 and 6 says that he has raised us up with Christ. He has seated us with Jesus in heavenly places. Why has he done this? First of all, parenthesis. He talks about something that hasn't happened as if, as if already happened. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're not seated in heavenly places right now. But this is a reality that we see. Our salvation is something that Happened in the past. God predestined us. It's happening right now. He's sanctifying us. And it is also happening in the future. He will glorify us. But it's all one thing. And how is that summarized? We have been saved. You are seated. You have been seated with Jesus in heavenly places. One day you will be there with, with him. Why is God doing this? So that in the coming ages, he might show, and again, the hyperbole, supposedly, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. Right now, we talk about these things, and we can get excited and, and even tear up about the richness of the immeasurable kindness of God towards us, and we can say, thank you, God, but we haven't really seen anything. There will be one day when God will show us the veil will be taken off and you will, you will see heaven and then you will look back at your life and you will just don't even know what to do with yourself. That's how it's going to be. God in the coming ages will show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus. He has given us everything. And then we land to verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are saved by grace. This is the difference between our faith and 
the rest of the faith. We are not given steps to go to heaven. The Ten Commandments are not steps for you to get to heaven. Everything you hear and read in the Bible is not on how to get to heaven. It's not steps so that you can earn anything. Our faith, what the Bible is doing, what the law is saying, is showing us this standard that we cannot accomplish so that we can understand that we are saved by a grace that we do not deserve. And it is pretty explicit here. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We have been saved because God wants to save us, and there is nothing we can do so that we can boast. What does this mean for us? And I know you've heard this so many times. This means that as a Christian, your eternal life is secure. It means that if you have repented from your sins and you know and believe and can verbally acknowledge the fact that Jesus is your Lord and your Savior, that means that you are saved. That means that you are saved. But I struggle with this. Yes, you're still saved. But I haven't done this. Yes, you're still saved because it's not based on what you do. Let's be real for a moment. All of us in here go back to our houses and, and are frustrated because of how bad we are in certain area, areas, how much we cannot measure up to being good parents, good husbands, good sisters, good uh, fathers, good whatever you are. Every single day we struggle because we are not sufficient enough of anything. And praise God that our salvation does not depend on any of that your salvation is not dependent on who you are or what you do your salvation is dependent on a person the grace of god is a person the grace of god has a name and it's jesus remember this every time god sees you he is seeing jesus every time god sees you he sees Jesus, your sins were thrown to the deepest of the ocean. From as far as the west is from the east, God has sent your sins away from him. He doesn't see your sin. Because you deserve it? No. Because of Jesus. Does he love you? Yes. Will he deal with us and sanctify us? Yes. Will he allow things to hurt us a little bit so that we can learn? Yes. Does that mean that he's not going to save you? No. He loves you. You are saved by grace. There is nothing you did to be saved, and there is nothing you can do to get unsaved. You are in his hands. And as reformed people, if you are reformed, we love ending here and leaving it there but paul didn't and he continues to give us this thing he's kind of woven woven this uh, thread of how our faith affects the people around us throughout the entire letter and throughout the new testament and it's also in the old testament 
And Paul says, why have we been saved? Is this just so that we can enjoy the freedom and the blessings and the joy that come from this? No. Verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship. Meaning, you did not create yourself. Created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. Which God prepared beforehand. Did you notice what he did? Paul began saying that we were chosen, elected, predestined before the foundation of the world. That's how he started. And then he closes the gospel with saying, you did not create yourself. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So your good works are not things that you will figure out later. They were also predestined for you. But we were created for good works in Christ Jesus. And this is important because as a church, we have divorced the gospel from the people around us. We believe, especially in Western cultures, that we are saved and that we are, it is all about my relationship with Jesus and me alone. There are people who believe that they are believers because they made a prayer, but they never do anything else for anyone. Some of them don't even go to church. Some of them don't act on their faith. They believe that their gospel and the salvation that we just preached about ends in just enjoying it yourself. And Paul would say, no. It does not stop there. Now, caution. We are not saved by works. We are saved to works. The works are the evidence of our salvation. So you are not saved because of what you do. But what you do shows if you are saved or not. And that is a key distinction of what we are. Because we are not believers who believe that the works come before our salvation. No, we believe that our salvation is shown in our fruits. And there is plenty of biblical evidence on this. It is impossible for a good tree to give bad fruit. Right? So what do we do with this? Because for the, for the most part of the Western world, being a Christian is what you, who you are and how you believe. It's, it's almost like a, a, an intellectual uh, activity. But what Paul is saying here is that, no, your gospel, your faith is not just something that happens inside of you. It's also something that moves you towards something else. And it moves you to the people around you. And this is what the Bible continues to, to state when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? The Pharisees hoped that he would say, just love your God and, and, and with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength and, and don't worship any other idols. They hoped that that was Jesus' answer. And Jesus said, and there's another one. The second is just as important as the first one. The one that they didn't like. Love your brother as yourself. 
And this is what's happening here. Paul is saying, yes, God saved us. You were this. You were dead. You were children of wrath. And God, look at what he did for you. He saved you. He gave you this free gift because he loves you. It's not because of what you do, but now go do. And it does not stop in you. It must continue. And what I want to get at today is that this gospel that we preach, this idea, this whole movement of the gospel-centered church is not about theology, is not about doctrine, and is not about getting the idea of grace right only. It's about a church that enacts the gospel towards the people around them. African-American pastor Eric Mason says the same, this, this, he says, regeneration is a motivation for good works. It is a fruit of the gospel. It is, it is a fruit of gospel transformation. God expects us to be active in good works for his glory as a response and proof that we have been transformed. And then he goes on to talk about how Jesus' ministry included healing, feeding, loving, delivering people. And Pastor Mason continues to say, what Jesus did was show that the good news touches every area of life. Being transformed by the gospel means that the covenant community bring that newness of life anywhere they go. And this is not the only emphasis we see in the Bible. Our gospel must, must make us go towards others. Paul writes to Titus in Titus 3.14 and he says, Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. This is something we must emphasize. And I feel like so often we finish at how much God loves us and the grace and the works that we don't need to do to be saved. And we ignore this whole thing. And we need to be people who act on our gospel. Because it is part of our faith. For we are his workmanship, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk them. What I want all of us to understand is that we have hope. We have joy that God has given to us. That is free for you. Enjoy it, but it doesn't stop there. It should not stop there. I don't remember who I was reading that Christianity is not a pool. Christianity is a pipe. You are just a conduit. You are not supposed to be this thing that just keeps getting bigger and bigger because of the grace of God. No. We are supposed to be people who continue to give and pass it to others. The hope that God gave us is the hope that the people around you need. And this happened thousands of years before. The reason why... God chose Abraham was not so that Abraham was just the father of faith and he was going to be rich. No, he was clear. He said, I will bless you so that in you, all the, the nations of the world will be blessed. So, I finish with this. Every time we hear the, 
the word gospel. And every time we think of grace, and every time we think of the uh, depravity that we have and how much God has saved us, let's begin to think of how that moves us towards others. It does not end with us. It must move us towards others. And I want to end up with a challenge. How is your faith, how is this gospel moving you towards others? How is this gospel moving you towards good works? And people ask, what are the good works? What do you mean good works? Works that do good to others. It's that simple. In all areas of life, feeding, helping, preaching the gospel, anything that you can do for others is good works when you love them and you care about them. That is a call today. And it's a call that stems, flows from the gospel. And I want to encourage us all to be a church that does not only think of ourselves. I know that we're going through a difficult situation. I know that there's, uh, we don't know if the church is going to make it. I know that we're all kind of trying to see what's going to happen. But this is completely independent of that. We are, have a calling to not only preach the gospel and receive the gospel, but also to do good works towards others. So I want to encourage us all, let's move towards others. There's plenty of need in this city. Let's move towards others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for today. I thank you for uh, your word. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for everything you've done for us. Thank you because you are a God of love. You are a God who has seen us in our worst state, and you move towards us. You bring healing. You bring love. And I pray that today, as a result of this understanding, Lord, we would do the same. We would look around us and see a world that is in need, who is dead, who is uh, suffering and needs hope, and that, uh, that you will help us move towards that. Lord, I, I pray that you would open our eyes as believers to realize that this, this grace, this gospel is not for us to keep. It is for us to give to others. Help us, God, in the name of Jesus Christ, be a church that moves to action. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.